And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. I got a unique story for you today, one I'm really excited about. We are talking with Michael Finkel, author of A Stranger in the Woods, and that stranger is a man named Christopher Knight, and I promise you, this is a story you've never thought about before, a concept you've never really considered, and more than likely, this is a story the likes of which you will never encounter again for your entire life. Christopher Knight was a man who spent ages 20 until 47, his formative years, that is 27 years he spent in the woods in central Maine, living by himself, off the grid, complete solitude, and the way he survived was burglarizing the, the cabins that were on the lake that he was on, it's called the North Pond, and he was called the North Pond Hermit, and just an extraordinary tale of survival. This is... Very similar, I'm guessing, to the way a cryptozoologist or a zoologist would feel if they stumbled across the chupacabra, right? We are anthropologists, and we stumbled across this very rare being, um, and his name is Christopher Knight. And there's too much to get into. We've got to get right into this. Um, let's talk to the author himself, Michael Finkel. Michael, thank you for being on the program today. So are you cool if I call you the Fink? I, I think I've been called that before. I can handle that. I think <laughs> right. I can handle that. All right. That's fair enough. Um, so uh, let's get into this, Fink. Let, let's really dive into this. It has so many different elements, so many different parts of this thing that, that, that make it such a nuanced uh, three-dimensional, four-dimensional, possibly breaking into the fifth dimension. I mean, we have you know true crime story here. we got a psychological analysis. You've got a Bigfoot-level urban legend and at the center of it all you have a human oddity uh how do how do you even before we get into this story how do you take something that complex and and even begin to analyze it right you got the you even mentioned a few of the dimensions and you got the survival story and um and even if it wasn't a survival story then you have a story uh a story about solitude so yeah Yeah, 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 yeah multiple levels yeah i i mean you are correct. As, uh, as soon as this story started flowering and Chris Knight, in his way, began speaking with me, I knew as a journalist, you know, it's like, it's, <laughs> I don't know why this came to my head, but it's like the equivalent of like the five-tool player in baseball. It's like, <laughs> right, this is yeah. a, you know, this is a good story. And I'm pretty cautious with what I write about. My previous book called True Story came out like 12 years previous and from the day I put the last period on the last sentence of my previous book I wanted to write another one and it still took 12 years because I look for a story that really demands to be told at more than magazine length yeah I mean just I mean I'm I have a similar mind like I'm I'm really attracted to very interesting strange kind of topics and so if I were to stumble across this idea 
you know, I don't even know how I would begin to break. The, I mean, because in order to explain something to someone else, you kind of have to break it down to its base elements. And I think, you know, we just covered, you know, f- five or six elements to this story that in each one requires breaking down the complexity of it. I mean, even the survival level of a guy who didn't have any survival skills and who ended up being a master survivalist that could, you know, teach doctorate level classes on it. You know, that in and of itself is a book. You know, the solitude of it, you know, people wrote books about solitude for a millennia. Um, So what I mean is like every every element of this, how do you prioritize the elements and, you know, things like that, like just more like when you have all this stuff and all this information, how do you put into a readable format? Which I think you kind of answered. Yeah, there's no magic formula. I have this like, this is less of a joke than you might think. I have this thing called like the bar stool test. Okay. And I mean, I mean, I mean, sounds I, complex. No, Hold on, Egghead. Slow down. Slow down. I'm entirely serious about this, and I'm probably going to give away my greatest secret. No, literally, when I am, you know, some writers I believe say, "Oh, I don't ever think about my audience," but that's not me. I, I always think about people reading this, and um, you know, I'm quite a busy person with young children, um, and I don't, I don't have a lot of patience. But the bar stool test is. Literally, and sometimes I fulfill it by actually going to a bar and sitting on a stool. Uh, it's as if your friend is sitting next to you on a, at a bar, and he, you know you're sipping your beer, and he says, "Well, what's your new piece about?" And whatever you start to tell him might be, you know, it's not like you're going to start. Well, the sun set one morning. You know, you're not going to start there. You're going to be like, "Dude, there's this guy, you know, who I encountered, and uh, you know, I read about him in a, a, a magazine article, and I felt this immediate like sort of flash of." recognition and this all my spidey senses my journalistic senses you know went to 10 and I had to write this guy a letter and whatever sort of story you tell your friend at the bar is it probably not too far off from the more interesting way to tell the story it's sort of like this natural thing so you know all science thrown aside get a beer and tell your friend what the thing's about and 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 it sort of sorts itself out and I, I I mean that literally sometimes when I am confused and there's a lot of things I love when my friends ask me what my story is about, and I start shaping it um, that way. Uh, oh. And uh, you know, and, and in this particular case, it's sort of I went sort of though the story itself dances around in time. The through line is like sort of how I learned everything. You know, I found right. out about a guy. In fact, I don't even use the word. It's the book is written in a very light first person manner. I don't think I used the word I until like thirty or thirty five pages in because the first things I learned were just reading. Um, newspaper articles about this uh, gentleman, and then I decided to to write him a letter, and it gets a little more personal. Got it. Because I mean, at the end of this whole thing, I mean, this is truly a psychological profile. I mean, it's you know, it's not PhD level psychological profile, but you do really uh, at a very very readable level kind of analyze this guy's mind, which is so different and works in such a different way than ninety than everyone in society. I mean, I, I think he's an anomaly. You know, I mean, you talk about there. There are hermit societies, um, but but you know, for them, for for in society today, there's no one like him, and so that's kind of what this becomes, which is what was interesting to me about the book. Uh, but let's so let, let's get right into this. You know, we're talking about Chris Knight. Um, let's this. I don't even. I, the reason why I asked you that first question is because I don't even know how really to attack this angle. Do we talk about Chris and then explain <laughs> who he is, or do we talk about hermits and then go into the story? Um, let's we just have some sort of bar stool test. Or yeah, something? yeah, I'm we need sure. to get a group of people together. I only got a dog sitting with me, so I can't really bounce ideas off her that well, uh, as much as I'd <laughs> like to. But let's maybe let's talk about let's talk about how 
you got interested in the story and how you got involved, and then we'll move on from there. Yeah, as I as as I mentioned, it's it is it is truly catnip to journalists. This story. I mean, you the just the tiny little basics are you know a, a single man lived by himself in the woods of Maine. Uh, apparently, never spoke or never had a conversation with anyone except for maybe saying the word hi for close to 30 years, um, had sort of an ingenious makeshift way of surviving, and then stole from cabins around the pond for food and clothing and survival basics. And, and you know, I'm, uh, uh, these, you know, and then, and then you think perhaps this person is simply crazy. And then you find out that also is stealing, you know, thousands upon thousands of books, some of them, you know, quite serious mm-hmm. literature, and you're like, oh, um, you know, I, I really want to know more. And it, it, you know, I, one of the things that's interesting when I when I was working on this, I worked a lot on, I read a lot of uh, accounts of solitary people and hermits throughout history, and there's there's been this fascination for talking to hermits and people that have separated themselves from the world. You know, it's even like the old. You know, it's this cliched thing where you think about the guru sitting on the mountaintop and the, you know, the parishioners coming up and saying, you know, please tell me what the meaning of life is. And though it sounds like a joke, it has been that way for, you know, since since recorded history, people that have separated themselves from society have been the people we go to to ask them what the heck is wrong with our society. Right. And it's something ingrained deeply on our on our DNA. And I, I basically fell into that very similar um, mindset, like I really would like to know what this guy, who's clearly has a head on his shoulders, uh, and is different from everyone else. And I think you touched on something just a minute ago um, when you started saying, you know, uh, here's a guy who's so different. I think one of the the themes of uh, of this story of the book, but in my encounter with Chris Knight, and it sort of rends my my heartstrings. Is like the question to me is like, what do you do with someone? who's different from the rest of us. Now we know what you do with someone who's different from the rest of us criminal, you know, in a mm. criminal way, which is right. you put them in jail. And we know what we do with someone who's different from us in, who's clearly mentally disturbed. We have mental hospitals and we have things like that. But what about neither of those things? You just don't fit into society, but you're not a criminal and you're not classically insane. And the answer is we don't know what we do with those people. We don't have a good place for them. And this is Chris Knight. And this is where he comes in into focus. Um, and where, why, why I found the story emotionally, uh, besides all the other things we talked about, it was emotionally sort of complex and really got to me because we just don't know what to do with people who don't fit into society. We don't have a place for such people. Well, and, let me, let me pop in here. So this is, you're actually striking at something pretty profound here. Um, because we're not talking about a guy who, who, I mean, besides the the thing that his his flaw here, societally speaking, is that he stole a lot of stuff to survive in the situation he wanted to be in, right? But if he was self sufficient in that world, nothing would have happened to him. And so it's it's you know 
there should be no reason why someone like him, who doesn't really fit into society as we know it, in a connectivity, in a social connectivity way, you know, because he's not like he doesn't fit in with us criminally or mentally, as you just said, but but just socially, we find that to be so uh, abhorrent almost, where he's, you know, an outcast, but that's what he wants to do. But the main flaw was he couldn't be self-sustainable in a true sense. But I think he would fit in in the world, in the world ecology, and you know, as a as a person who wanted to be left alone, if he could just fend for himself. Does that make sense? Not only that, not only does it make sense, I think that Chris Knight himself realized that that if he was able to hunt and fish and live on public land, um, he would have been able to do it. But the problem is that's a great idea. But the actual implementation of that idea is just about impossible. You know, even, you know, ancient humans hunted in groups and then wintertime is just brutal. And so I think Chris Knight saw like the promised land, which was like complete and total independence and couldn't achieve it and didn't know what to do. Where like was he willing to sacrifice breaking the law or was he willing to sacrifice, you know, hey, I guess – I have this calling to be alone. No, I guess I'll just live with, you know, in society so I don't break the law. And he chose the law breaking method and he tried to have a code as in not stealing things of great value, not shattering, kicking in doors and shattering windows, trying for no one to be at home. But he was, Chris Knight himself, the flaws of his own system. And, uh, and it just only adds to the complexity of the story rather than detracts from it, I find. Yeah, I just, I mean, you're totally right. It's just such a, because one of the claims, I want to take issue with you, sir. One of the claims that you say is that he possibly in human history is one of the people who is the most, he's been the most, um, has has spent the most time in solitude. It was 27 years he spent by himself, not, you know, not speaking, not, he he claimed he never talked in his campsite. He never kept a, a written record. Um, you know, this is a guy who really was alone, would go in this dead of night to steal things from empty cabins. But I think that the only reason we believe that or that you said that is because he was caught. But I have to think that there are people who are who are so good at being alone that they live in a cabin in the woods. And maybe they've been living in a cabin in the woods for 30 years and we don't know because by definition, they're alone and we don't know about it. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm almost glad that you... That you asked that question, uh, despite pointing out a possible <laughs> wrinkle in my claims. I like that. Accept the challenge uh, head on. I like that, Mike. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, to to be honest, when I when I when I think about Chris Knight and and how um, unhappy he was to be removed from his from the woods, and was thinking, well, who's you know who's been there longer? I I, I hope that someone is there in the woods that has been. You know, or in, in the desert, or in the you know, uh, uh, in the tundra, or maybe in uh, Siberia that has been secluded longer. And you know, because of both my journalistic background and because of the extraordinary degree of disbelief this story can provoke, I needed to be extremely careful when writing this story. This is a story that needs no embellishment or exaggeration. It is hard enough to believe, and yet is. Is true or impossible to believe. It's, un, it's an un, un, unbelievable story. That's, Absolutely. It's literally an unbelievable story. By definition, story. No yeah. one can believe 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yet it is also true. And so, and because, of, and I, I presume we'll get into this a little bit because of uh, some uh, roller coastery <laughs> career track, because of my past, and because of um, because this story is so hard to believe. This is the one. Uh, if there's any story that you want to avoid any embellishment or exaggeration, it's this one. It needs none. And I was extremely careful and hired fact checkers and used lawyers and talked to the police and was had so many people check this story that I didn't want anyone. I didn't want to um, say anything that I wasn't extraordinarily confident about. Uh, if you read my book, uh, uh, to the best of my abilities, uh, everything you read is true. If I was 99% sure of something, I cut it out. It wasn't good enough. But on the other hand, uh, you know, if there's any sentence in the entire book that has the whiff of potential exaggeration, it might be on the cover. And the subtitle is The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit. And is it possible? Do we really know that Chris Knight is the last hermit? And the answer is, of course, we don't. And often I wonder if there's somebody out there that's lived longer or has someone lived their entire life you know, in complete secrecy and we'll just never know. And I hope the answer is yes, that there is someone out there. And uh, if anyone's going to be more hidden than Chris Knight, it's entirely possible that we'll just never know. And never knowing something to me, some people find that frustrating and I find that bizarrely satisfying that <laughs> really? there could be some person out there. Right? <laughs> That's so funny. Um, I'm with the extremely frustrating part, but I think your belief is a little bit more the way it should be, right? Because I think people, you know, when, when people go traipsing around looking for something that doesn't want to be found, like, you know, is that's such a selfish human drive, you know? And I think that that drive for knowledge is kind of what has caused us to destroy many parts of nature because we have to know the answer. So we're traipsing around the jungles looking for whatever, you know? The last, you know, the, the last uh, tribal civilization, you know, the last primitive mm-hmm. this or whatever. So I, I think that's a very dangerous urge, even though I have it myself. Uh, so I, I think we've teased this story enough. Speaking of urban legend, I want to get into some of the details because I think the details, you really have to kind of take in the details of Chris Knight to really appreciate this story in its entirety. So let's start very much like you do in the book, not giving anything away, with the capture of Chris Knight. He, this is why it's such a big deal. This guy was a true urban legend, which I grew up with a lot of urban legends about crazy people living in the woods, you know, scary you know, people in, in houses that they never left. It's kind of like the, the act of someone who's in solitude, who separated themselves from society, almost gives them a sense of danger because they're not capable of living in society. So as a kid, they become the dangerous boogeyman. And I think Chris Knight was that in this world, and then he gets caught. Let's talk about that. Right. And so the boogeyman in 99.9% of the cases is fictitious. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is, you know, the thing, I, one of the 20 things I love about this is that, you know, it's not a supernatural. It's not like, you know, um, uh, it, 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 the legend, if, if anything, is is more believable than the truth. And I, and I really love that. It, as I think I mentioned in the book, it has as if like some big monster walks out of Loch Ness right. um, or like the Yeti comes strolling into town. It is really at that level. Now, yes, Yeti is more famous and Loch Ness is more famous. But in this region of central Maine, I cannot overstate the shock that this sort of campfire 
tale of, oh, yeah, there's this person who's lived for, oh, you know, three generations of people, or, you know, 30 years who's, you know, who'd only only steals things he needs to survive. This entire legend that built up actually was true. It's as if literally you walk into your child's room to put a couple of dollars under their pillow after they lost a tooth and you see the tooth fairy. Right. Like, <laughs> like, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? <laughs> like, what? Like, and it... At that level, and one of the things that was very wonderful about uh, you know working on the story was not only having the opportunity to encounter Chris Knight, but the people he affected and the vast range of reactions that people had to to Chris Knight. So this legend, right? The the, the legend is a, another element uh, uh, of, the, of this of the story that is just um, you know so uh like satisfying on a story level like it, it, this this thing that that haunted the woods and other people sort of everyone on the lake it, it had a relationship with this guy who seemed to shun all relationships um and it almost gave the lakes a like a cachet like oh we are we have our we have our legend here and um i, I you know <laughs> i bet it drove property values down though <laughs> there's a guy who's, who breaks <laughs> into your house but come on move in <laughs> um and, and i think you know like like i said like here's a guy who talked to talk about like you know sort of ideals sort of backfiring here's a guy who thought he was trying to escape from the world but as you pointed out before was up utterly dependent on it for food and clothing and and all these bizarrely one-sided relationships formed i talked to everyone in there the way they spoke about chris knight was quite personal like people told me oh yeah you know he doesn't like chunky peanut butter or you know boxer shorts oh, right. he prefers creamy and briefs <laughs> and like happens like, like in their mind like the, the, everyone ha felt like they knew this guy, and it, by by like sort of tangential encounters, a picture of him emerged on on the lake, and I, you know, and then there were people that absolutely hated Chris Knight with a passion that I've rarely encountered. People telling me that there it was this this mysterious person in the woods who was stealing things from them was the worst thing that ever happened to them in their life, people said to them. And there was even a, a, a few people that tried to capture them on their own. There was one man who you know, spent night upon night in the dark with his handgun in his house hoping to capture the hermit. And I, I feel like those reactions to this mystery say a lot about who they are, more than they say actually about who Chris Knight was. And I, mm. I found that to be just... None of them were wrong. Like if you I, – listen, if I owned a cabin there and I, I earned my – I spent my hard-earned money to have an escape from the world and someone was breaking in, I don't know how I would react. And mm -hmm. so I – this wasn't any sort of posturing on my part. Everybody's – nobody was incorrect. Like how you react to something like this, you cannot deny the right or wrong. It's just a human reaction. But the fact that it was so varied from complete – to people to me – you know, I hated him and wanted to kill him to, man, I was jealous of this guy. And if I had, had caught him, I probably would have let him go. And I found that to be, like people of Central Maine are quite welcoming and quite friendly. And I sat there with my notebook in people's homes. Uh, often they made me a hamburger or, or said, let's go out for a canoe or have a beer and would tell me their version of the hermit story. And it never failed to be both personal and intense there was not a single person who shrugged and said i don't have a story it was a uh, everyone deeply 
Well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, the thing you're talking about here was people talk, oh, he liked creamy peanut butter, boxers, not briefs, you know, zucchini over carrots. It, these are things he was stealing. So they, <laughs> they knew that because those were the things that were missing. And you tell one funny story in the book about how in someone's alcohol shelf, th- th- he wouldn't take the skinny girl margarita. And that's how they remembered. <laughs> that's how they kind of kept some of the stuff safe as they had, you know, he wouldn't take certain alcohols. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny. They, they knew his preferences. It, not just Chris Knight's story is interesting, but everyone else's story of their relationship with the hermit. Here's the guy who shunned all human relationships and yet was also was reliant on society for food and clothing. And everyone he stole from seemed to develop a, a, an interesting sort of one-sided relationship with Chris Knight. And it was all over the map. You know, people, uh, again, I mentioned it was, it's like, it's like the the story of the uh, the the blind men and the elephant. Everyone touches a different part and describes the elephant elephant completely differently. And I felt like that as I was driving the lake. And one of my one of my great joys in reporting this was for each of my reporting trips, six or seven trips to Maine, I would drive around the lake like a door to door salesman. If I saw someone on their porch, I would introduce myself, and I can't even think of an exception to this rule. Invariably, uh, people would tell me their story of the hermit and sometimes people is expressed deep respect and admiration and some people expressed really deep loathing and there was no neutrality it was almost and, and sometimes families were split I, I i i'm just thinking of this one thing where um the wife was quite upset about this hermit and said how you know how she couldn't sleep at night and how it was the worst thing that ever happened to her and the husband sort of beckons me over and after the wife said her piece i think i went to the husband's sort of man cave and he's like i feel completely differently you know, I always, <laughs> and, and, you know not not to bring politics into everything, but it was almost like a political like, you know, the last election was so heated. It was almost like meeting people on the political spectrum and, and it wow. did divide family. And, you know, the husband was like, listen, the third time he broke in and it was just like, you know, a couple of things of sugar and, uh, you know, this. I knew that this guy wasn't, you know, our, our my wife's jewelry was sitting on the counter and he didn't touch it. And our computer was there. I, I knew. And uh, and I and I found like people's reactions to Chris Knight to say uh, to say a lot about who they were more more than who he was and uh, n- nobody was wrong. How you react to such an odd uh, phenomenon? There, there's no wrong reaction. It's just it sort of shows the uh, the the breadth of you know humanity. And, and I really like that because it brings everyone else into the story. Well, you and I have two different opinions on that because I do think there are wrong reactions to that. I don't think waiting to try to shoot him is necessarily the proper reaction, um, but that's me. <laughs> it wouldn't be my reaction either, right. but again... You um, can't place judgment, uh, I, I will. Okay, go ahead, place okay. it away. But no, uh, what I'm saying, you know, I, I, guess I, I guess I live too long in Montana where, you know, we do have these, <laughs> we do have these stand your ground... Sure rules where if you enter someone's house non-invited and you shoot them that is not breaking the law as 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 may, maybe you disapprove of it but that is not illegal and therefore not wrong by law now you might say it's morally wrong but i i i really truly withhold judgment on that it's not what i would do but uh 
Well, no, no, no. Hold it's on, hold on. I want to clarify what I'm saying there. I, I don't, I, I don't. The, the law is the law. Whatever. I'm saying, as a human being, if I was excited and waiting and and wanted to shoot someone and hoping that they would enter my home so that I could shoot them, I'm going to pass judgment on that. There's something wrong with someone who's looking forward to shooting someone and waiting for them, lying in wait for them to come into their house. Right. So that's what right. I'm as passing I, judgment that, on. That's particular instance. <laughs> Fair enough, and as I said, it does. I think your reaction to Chris Knight says definitely says more about who you are <laughs> right. and what you're, what you, what you believe that, than than what Chris Knight is. So I, I agree that that's not what I would do either. Well, the, but this is a great segue into how people react because kind of the catalyst for this entire story is an as uh, a police officer named Terry Hughes who became obsessed with this hermit legend. And he's the reason that we even know about this story in the first place. Let's talk about him. Terry Hughes is really a fascinating person. He, uh, you know, he grew up in central Maine. He spent, I think, about a decade to a dozen years in the Marines. And then he'd been in the um, game. He's a game warden, a Maine game warden for like 18 years. And he is an expert in the forest. And you know, in for missing person hunts, for like, you know, nabbing uh, illegal hunters. He has a way to read the forest that is, you know, the equivalent of a professional, uh, you, you know, he's, he's a woodsman extraordinaire and really serious and law and order. And at the same time, deeply curious and intellectual. And in a funny sort of way, Chris Knight and Terry Hughes can be both polar opposites or very similar. And it took someone like him to capture Chris Knight. You're right. I think he used the word obsessed and he became obsessed. The problem with the Chris Knight story is that he fell between the cracks, Chris Knight. You know, his crimes were certainly serious, but not serious enough to warrant a, a lot of police attention. Um, and uh, it took a man like Terry Hughes who's like, well, this is obviously not mythical things are missing from cabins. <laughs> right, yeah. Locks have been picked, you know, windows have been opened. We're not talking about pure myth and there is an answer. And this is the type of guy who's like, well, if there is an answer, then I'm going to find it. And without getting too deep into the weeds, set up an elaborate trap to capture the hermit and did. And of all the interviews of all, all the people I met while reporting this story, Chris Knight aside, there is this five minute, and I videotaped some things. There is this five minute video clip of Terry Hughes, the game main game warden, who captured Chris Knight. And I asked him about meeting, you know, the the the, the encounter with Chris Knight and and, and learning about uh, the evening that he caught him. And you can watch that. You don't even need to have the volume on. You can just watch this guy's face. This guy is a law and order man to the extreme, and he. Just captured a guy who confessed to a thousand felonies, <laughs> and yet, and yet, within minutes of encountering Chris Knight, and I really think this is like sort of like the, the reason why this story resonates. Chris Knight immediately admitted to all his crimes, expressed deep remorse, and also. Like here's the forest expert Terry Hughes meeting someone who is more of an expert. And you can see Terry Hughes's face turn from like 
sort of rigid, like law and order to, I mean, there's no other way to say it, to like awe. And I believe that Terry Hughes almost felt bad that he caught this guy. He thought it was going to be this, you know, this mean, nasty old man who didn't feel, you know, it was, it was sort of took pleasure in torturing people. But instead, it was a very quiet guy who really wasn't built to be a criminal. He was built to be a he, he built to be a, a hermit and didn't know how to turn to and didn't didn't know what to do. And Terry Hughes ended up having this deep respect for the forest skills of this hermit and almost felt bad that he arrested him. And you could just watch his face soften as he talks about his first encounter with the hermit. And I think a lot of people or the very few people that actually met him sort of have the same reaction, which is, dang, you know, we talked about this at the outset. Here's a guy who just doesn't fit in anywhere and was trying his hardest to figure it out. And just there was just no spot for him. And and, and I really thought, you know, the, the, the story of Terry Hughes uh, really sort of encapsulates the story of Chris Knight, you know, which is like, here's a guy who you could easily hate. But once you encounter him, maybe you think a little deeply and more deeply and find that uh, there's a lot of layers. Well, I mean, even as you're talking about this, like I'm extremely conflicted and I can be kind of a black and white person. But you're you know, I mean, on one hand, Christopher Knight, the hermit was stealing you know, over 27 years, the same houses. I mean, he was making people feel unsafe. He wasn't stealing a lot of stuff, but, he, you know, the stuff he was stealing, he was still stealing. Stealing is stealing, invading someone's homes, invading someone's home, no matter how respectful, no matter what set of, right. you know, laws you've given yourself. And then on the other hand, he is just a guy who wanted to be left alone. And in some ways, Terry Hughes kind of ruined his life. You know, I, I don't I don't know where Chris Knight is now. Maybe we can get into that later. But I, I don't think he's retreated back into the woods. Um, but, you know, he did ruin he ruined, he ruined his life and all for the sake of like catching him. Now, I, now, as a police officer, I do understand he was trying to catch him because of the felonies. But, you know, I don't think that was really the reason. I think he had the natural human instinct to catch and, and understand that which is the unknown. And like so many human beings do, when you start doing that, you ruin the thing that you're seeking to, to capture. And I think that really happened here. Yes. Now, um, Terry Hughes, the uh, game warden, acknowledges this, although I too have been accused as a writer of, if not ruining Chris Knight's life, doing exactly what he didn't want, which is taking a person who wanted utter anonymity and celebrating this widely and publicly. Here we are speaking on your podcast and talking about Chris Knight when all he wanted to do was be left alone. Now, I will also tell you one other thing that Terry Hughes said to me, the game warden, that almost made me feel better because I discussed this very thing with him, if you can allow me to continue. And and I said to him, you know, I, there's times I feel like, you know, I'm a human being. I'm not I'm a journalist. Absolutely. But I'm not a pit bull. Like, you know, I, I go after stories in the most you know thorough way possible. But it's not like I don't realize like, hey, am I disturbing this person? And am I am I causing this person more pain in his life? And I I actually brought up this exact topic with down at a coffee shop. And he turned to me and he said, listen, Mike, the man committed a thousand felonies. He sort of gave up his right to privacy by doing that. I don't feel bad and you shouldn't feel bad. You know, so he, 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 he you, know, ter you know, Terry Hughes, despite, you know, very, feeling very warmly about Chris Knight, doesn't feel bad about capturing him. And he said, you shouldn't feel bad about writing, writing him. He broke the law and knew it. 
Yeah, but but I don't know. I, then you get into a whole philosophical discussion about you know what are laws, and those are the laws that are governing society, a society that he doesn't even fit into. So I, I don't know. I don't I don't necessarily agree with Terry Hughes, but I do understand where he's coming from. Um, but l- let me let me say one other thing here because you brought up an interesting point where I don't think anyone would accuse you of widely celebrating the story because he told you the story. It's it's not like he didn't know a book was being written. I mean, you make it clear in your book. That, um, you know, and we can, your journalistic history aside, I'm going to trust you on this, that he did know you were writing a book and did know that it was going to be published. It does seem strange to me that a guy who does want to be alone, who didn't write down a single word, who didn't speak a single word to himself, or actually did speak one single word over 27 years to another person, uh, why he would even engage in this conversation knowing full well it was going to be made public knowledge is kind of the central mystery in this that remains to me to be unsolved. I think I can solve that mystery for you. Okay, great. And I almost wish... I almost wish I had written this in the book, and I'm glad you brought this up. First of all, Daniel, yes, everything that you're going to read is true. It's been, you know, fact-checked times 100, and of course the book's been out, and the magazine article I wrote previously has been out for several years, and there has been not a single person or has reflected anything. So this is true. But yeah, here's the funny part. So Chris Knight, as you are aware, if, you, if, if, if you've encountered him in the pages of the book, is extraordinarily intelligent, and if you'll remember... It wasn't just me that tried to get in touch with him. By his own lawyer's count, something along the line of 500 journalists tried Mm -hmm. to contact Chris Knight. And some degree of uh, of luck and situational uh, uh, fortune, uh, he spoke with me. But this is what I believe. He he didn't say, but he sort of hinted at it. Chris Knight knew that he was going to be hounded for his story forever and in a in a you know game theory sort of way and chris knight very bright guy and sort of understands game theory in a game theory sort of way he realized that if he told his story to one person that might actually give him more uh uh solitude it would actually allow the rest of the world to leave him alone like here's what i have to say i'm gonna you know, I'm, my this book is sort of like a fence. I'm going to surround myself. If you want to know what I have to say, read the book. Leave me alone. Here's my statement to the world. Now let me retreat into solitude. And that is actually, I'm happy to report, to the best of my knowledge, what has happened. You know, Central Maine is a pretty private place. So far as I know, no other journalists have come and hounded and bugged him. He said his piece and retreated back. And I believe if he had never told his story, there would be people knocking on his door constantly. And I think he's right. So it was sort of a game theory thing. He said, you know, I don't want to tell my story at all, but if I tell it once, it'll actually give me more privacy. And I think he's right. You know, that's an interesting point. I will say that typically in those cases, it does work in that the majority of people will go away, that the casual you know, the casual curiosity, uh, what do I want to say? The casual, casual curious p- people. Is that even a word? I'm not even saying You know what I mean? Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yes. There, you said it correctly. <laughs> uh, like those people will all disappear, right? But in some weird way, 
the truly passionate, the truly obsessed people, not quite like Terry Hughes, but in a similar obsession level where they're like, I want to know more about this guy, will almost become more polarized by hearing a story. They'll either it'll either resonate with them in some weird way or they'll just be very curious or they'll be very, you know, angry. It's like kinda of like how people are with Bigfoot, you know? I mean people there are people who are hunting if it was an animal that just wanted to be left alone, if it even exists, why would you go out and hunt it and like chase it down? Like that doesn't it's people like that, you know, like if someone doesn't want to be who wants to be left alone, they'll I'm curious about that thing that wants to be left alone. And it almost polarizes them to go find him because now they know exactly where they can find him. So I think in some ways it does it does get rid of most of the noise, but it, it can, you know, make the crazies even crazier. You know, a couple of things that you've mentioned sort of uh, I'm smiling about because we talked about, you know, this like, you know, oh, is there any, you know, is there any real hard and fast the solution to Chris's, you know, telling his story and wanting privacy. And is there any sort of black and white, you know, Chris Knight is right or wrong? Uh, you know, Terry Hughes capturing him was that right or wrong? I think the general point that we're coming to is one of the things that I love about nonfiction, true stories, is that, God, we can debate about all these things for a while and there is no clear answer. And if you're the type of person who likes everything in a clear box like this is why this is so this is why this is so then you're not really going to like this story there is mystery at the heart of it even the why and the how like every part of it is like wow uh i don't have a clear right or wrong answer and uh, i also found that to be very thrilling to me like there's no there's there's no like absolutely satisfying you know um you can't put you can't categorize this in any firm way this story and or any element of it without like you know two people can get together there's only two of us imagine if there was like 10 of us in this room daniel we'd all be right. we'd all be shouting at each other it's a story that it's a mystery that the more you examine it kind of gets a little bit more mysterious and unclear and i love stories like that where you to me and i you'll have to every reader will have to decide if this book or this story satisfies them but to me I like a book, I like a story or a movie where you finish it and you can, your brain continues to churn and maybe even that night you wake up and you're like, ah, this is how I feel about him. And the next morning you feel differently. I like stories like that. Mm. I mean, those are the ones that make you think. I mean, engaging our brains is something we don't do very often in this society and I think that that is important. With, with this, I, I mean, you, you hit it on the head. Is there's, there are mysteries here that will never be solved because by definition, this story is about solitude. So there is only one human being on the planet who knows what really happened, who know, who can fill in all the blanks, and there are a lot of them. There's only one guy who can do that, and he doesn't talk. So like that, that will constantly be a mystery. Like for example, I think his kind of his origin story. I'm a comic book fan, so maybe that's not the best way to put it. But you know how he started out is kind of it's really interesting, and you can fill in the gaps. Just you know, he he was a, a kid who kind of even growing up didn't feel like he fit in with society, with with school. Didn't have a lot of friends. wasn't necessarily like a loner per se, but didn't really feel social interactions were his were his uh, forte. He's 20 years old. He starts working in installing security cameras, which comes up later on, which is kind of cool, and then goes on this road trip to ends up in Florida, has an epiphany, drives back in his newly co-signed by his brother uh, Subaru Brat, which I'd never heard of that car before, drives this thing deep into the woods, 
leaves the keys on the dash, and then just decides, I'm going to live in the woods. We don't know what happened on that drive. We don't know what the epiphany was. You know, We don't know why he chose there, why he drove into the woods, where the car is. There's all these, you know, I mean, even finding the car, his original car, they haven't found that, that yet either, have they? Does he know where that is? So far as I know. So far as I know, they haven't. And I mean, I like what you're saying. And just to pull the rug out, I don't know how many rugs can be under you, but just to pull one more rug out under you. Okay. Well, first of all, Daniel, I think you've dated yourself by not knowing what what a brat is. Now, I'm 48 years old, and I'm telling you, I'm every a car one guy. of my generation. Really? Every one of my generation knows about the brat. Uh, okay. uh, Chris Knight was about two years older than me, so I'm a, of a brat generation. It was a, wow. a funny sort of car. And, okay. So let me. Let me just pull the rug out just a little bit further. Okay. Another thing that I loved about this story is that anything that you might consider like something solid that you can you can grasp onto in terms of life, like, oh, it's important to work hard and earn money or, you know, our lives on spool in a sort of story, I think Chris sort of overturned it. What if, and this isn't even speculative, a lot of people think about it, what if really there is no narrative to our story. Like everyone's like, why did Chris do, do this? What, you know, A to B to C. What if really we just sort of make that up to sort of satisfy ourselves? And the truth is we often kind of stumble from, from situation to situation and we just try and thread it together as a narrative because that's the way our brain works. But really, it's a lot of random stuff happening. And what if instead of trying to string that together, you acknowledge the relative randomness of it? Yeah, here's a guy who just quit his car and didn't have a plan for 27 years. He had a plan for 27 minutes, and it just sort of happened to be 27 years that you string together. There was no why. And what if that – what if there's no specific why is truly the answer? Like you – oh, there's got to be a reason for this. There's got to be a reason for that. Nope. I don't think there has to be a reason for everything, especially if you start diving into the history of people a lot of time alone. There doesn't have to be a reason for things. That's just what we think there has to be. And really, do you really have to work hard and make a living? There's a couple of philosophers who say the richest person is the person who works least. The richest person is the person who has the most free time. We brag about how much we work and this and that, but really, maybe the dude on the street, not working, that you look down on and think is a dragon society, maybe that person is the freest, most liberated person. You don't know, and I, I, I really love, I could be wrong, but I liked thinking about such things, and Chris Knight also clearly thought about such things, and uh, you know, there really is, is, maybe there's no point to life. It might be completely random, and people could shake their heads at that, but I'd say give it two thoughts, and maybe instead of shaking your head, you might get a small dose of the chills and be like, wow, maybe there is no point. We're just stumbling around blindly and trying to make a narrative, and instead of rejecting it immediately, sit with it for a little bit. <laughs> kind of I'm sounds sitting like this with conversation. It. No, I'm sitting with it. All right. <laughs> well, no, so I, I like what you're doing there, and and I think I, I think you're right and you're wrong, but I'm gonna challenge you on it because I think it's an interesting thing to talk about. I do believe that there are lots of random events that there are things externally that we can't control. So there are things that will happen to us from an external source that we can't control. However, I do, and and I think the narrative structure you're talking about, the stringing everything together, is in fact a way for our brains to organize. Because I think as just naturally we try to organize things, and so to tell a story is like a line. It's, you know, it's a string. It's from point A to point B. It's a line, right. and we draw that to organize it. However. 
So, so I agree with you on those two points. However, I will disagree vehemently. I will staunch, staunchly oppose that people don't do things for a reason. And I think the people who don't do things for a reason are the, are schizophrenics or the mentally ill. I, I think they maybe do things randomly without reason. Psychopaths may do that. But I think most normal, rational people will do things, whether it's some something in their brain clicked and they thought about it and then there was a reason that they did something. Um, no one does things without a purpose, without a reason. Uh, even when people say, I didn't, I don't know the reason. There was a reason. There was some, something pushed you one way instead of the other, right? I mean, this is kind of what quantum physics is based on is that there's multiple different options you can take and you chose one. And I think there are guiding, either it's social forces, psychological forces, whatever, guiding you in that direction. And I think Christopher Knight, whether he told you or not, whether he believes it or not, on that drive, when he decided, you don't just decide with something like that to just go into the forest. You just don't. There's something that you've made a decision in your head. Something has happened to you. Even if you decide, like, you know what? I don't belong in society. It can be as simple as that. And say, I'm going to try my stuff in the woods. Well, that's a decision that you made based on your history. So I, I think that there is a reason. And maybe we'll never know it. But I, I think there was one. Okay, so let's talk about that. You know, Christopher Knight, he gets in his car. He's 20 years old. He drives into the woods of Maine, and or, or he, dri- he drives down to Florida, and he drives up, up up north, and you're right. An idea comes to him, a radical idea that he's going to do. I mean, not to put the car keys in your pocket and walk away, but yet to actually leave them in a car that's mm-hmm. just about right. out of gas and right, stuck right. in the woods is a very radical leap. But to disagree with your disagreement of me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Maybe there is a reason for something, but I'm thinking of the simplest of things like why did you start this podcast or why did I become a writer? And you might say, well, I became a writer because I had this great teacher in, you know, I'd say the answer, if you really drill down and I don't want to get too lost in the weeds, the answer to why I became a writer, for example, is too, like, oh, maybe I, 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 I read this book and then someone said it's a praiseworthy thing. And there's actually a thousand tiny little elements and moments that lined up and there, if you, if I, it, there's no single or t- double or even, you know, 10 little reasons. It's, it's like an, almost an infinite number of tiny that you mentioned physics. And, and when you, when you get into a quantum physics, I think you even mentioned quantum physics, then there, it, it gets extremely random and extremely complicated. And I'm glad you made that comparison because I've spent a little time in the world of physics. Um, and that maybe what I'm trying to say is that you might want your human mind want to say, yes, I became a writer because my seventh grade teacher said you are an amazing writer. But that's not just it. There's like a thousand other little things that also happened. And I just grasped on that because it's easy for me to tell you that. But it's not actually the truth. And the truth is that it's impossibly complicated to tell you why I became a writer. Would you at least go with me on that? I think that's a great way to put it. I just don't think that it's it's not a random event. I think that it's a, a lead up from many small little pushes in one direction is how you end up on the path that you're on. Right, right. So if I ask Chris Knight, why did you become a hermit for 27 years? You know, his answer, would, I guess, would be like, we don't have 27 years to discuss this. Or it's like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really like, like he, he, this man is like, a literalist on some level, like he seemed incapable of lying. And when you get caught in that sort of crazy moment where, you know, to simplify maybe is a lie, it's easier to say that it's just very difficult to say. And I, I love this conversation because we're, you know, we're, it, it's, uh, it's, it's both, it's, it's, 
satisfyingly unsatisfying. It's like, wow, you know, <laughs> shoot, man, make that rule that everything's so complex. We can't state with certainty anything. And I would be like, exactly. You can't state with certainty anything. Why did I marry my wife? Good Lord. I mean, I could tell you the simple story, the complicated story. And the truth is, I don't know. Right. <laughs> She's not in the room, is she? <laughs> no, but I wish she I wish she did listen to that. Yeah, when she listens to that, you may have some explaining to do. Um, ah, no, I think I, I think that that's I think that that's great. And there's another element I want to get to this because um, we can go back and forth on that all day. It's a great great conversation. The other, you know, if we're going to keep in this meta world, and you know, I, I wanted to get down to some of the minutia because and you may just have to read the book to find out everything about how he organizes camp, how he was never sick. There's so many things going on here with with his work world in the camp. But when it comes to the solitude moment, this is what's kind of, I think, going to be difficult for people to really understand just how alone he was. And I don't think we have a way to comprehend it because when we look at our society today, people who are alone, you know, you mentioned the person without anything, you know, is the most free. It's like, well, I live in LA. There are so many homeless people here who I promise you don't feel free and are not happy that they're living in basically the same conditions, you know? I mean, the, the, not really, but kind of. I mean, they're, they have camps, they have tents set up, um, you know, they're living without, you know, off the grid completely. Solitary confinement is one of, you know, now being considered one of the most cruel forms of punishment for, for someone, taking them away from society. So I don't know if the answer is lack of stimulation or if it's lack of social interaction, most psychologists today are saying it's a lack of social interaction that, in fact, is what is so cruel. So I think that is an element of the story that is really going to be hard for people to truly grasp. Right. And I, I feel like I sounded maybe maybe a tiny bit callous in implying that anyone who's maybe homeless is in any way satisfied. I think the massive difference between that we have to always, that, that, I, that I really before we get deeper into this, that I have to say is that. Chris Knight voluntarily was alone, not involuntarily. Many people that are on the streets are involuntarily alone. Certainly everyone in solitary confinement in jail is involuntarily alone. People that are held hostage and, you know, John McCain, Senator John McCain talks about, you know, being held in solitary confinement. This is involuntary. And I really it's essential that we divide the two. And we're talking about voluntary solitude, which is you know, it's the same thing. And it, like, like you said, the same state, like you get Thoreau and Walden, like just, just like bursting with poetry about being alone. And then you could read someone who's been held in solitary confinement and someone like John McCain, who broke both his arms and had dysentery and said, none of that, or that all paled in comparison to being held alone. It's like this fine line between torture and bliss. And for the most part, the book does touch on the people that find it to be torturous. And then, but mostly I'm concentrating on those who crave it and seek it. And it's a very thin but um, distinct group of people throughout human history that have been by themselves. And it is utterly fascinating. You know, well, you know it's interesting that it's in, every, in every society in, at all times in recorded history, there have been reports of people that voluntarily left the world and wanted to be alone. And that unto itself is fascinating. But what I find much more fascinating is the effect that those people who have sought aloneness have had on the rest of us. Um, and in, you know, in, in the religious realm, that's the most, that's the easiest one uh, to, to talk about. You know, Jesus uh, wandered for 40 days 
in the Judean desert before he started his ministry. Muhammad was all by himself in a cave outside of uh, Mecca uh, before he was delivered the, the, the Quran. Buddha sat by uh, himself uh, underneath the, uh, the the peepal tree in in India before becoming becoming enlightened and then now you know, four billion people follow these religions you know it's like what happens when you're alone by every single account is tremendously uh, disruptive of your life and and deeply uh, deeply fascinating. Well, I think the the key to all of those things is that. It's not so. It's not the physical state of being alone. It's the true severing of your ties to society. I mean, our, it, human beings as a as an animal are extremely communal. It's how we kind of took over the planet in a way. You know, it wasn't just our brains; it was our ability to work together to outsmart everything. Yeah. And yeah, and I th- the strongest, fastest. We're the smartest, and we link them up exactly. like a, like a chain of computers. No, yeah, it's we're true. daisy chain. We're daisy chain our brains yeah. essentially. And I think that yeah. it's it's not it's not the act of being alone. It's severing yourself from society. And I think the people who are the most miserable are the ones who want to be a part of society but are being denied a part of society. And the people you're talking about are voluntarily severing themselves, you know, completely from society. Chris Knight wanted nothing to do with society. If they didn't have if society didn't exist in the structure it existed in where people had to have things, he wouldn't have any of those things because he needed he was kind of like a parasite on society. But the social aspect of it, the key thing we're talking about here, is that was he was fine without that. And I think that that's really the difference between all the people you're talking about is they chose to walk away, which is something that not everyone can do. And you made an interesting point in the book. We won't go into it too much. Um, but there's actually a, a medical and physiological element to the need, the, the chemicals that are released when we are interacting with people and the chemicals that are released when we don't interact with people and how there are varying degrees of need for that interactivity. Um, I just found that to be completely fascinating. Yeah, again, without getting too much into it, you obviously we all know people that you know love socializing, and then you know there's a sliding scale, uh, and seem to be classical loners. And it's and it actually turns out that you can you know somewhat measure. Uh, there's a couple of chemicals in the brain that sort of determine you know your need for sociability. And I think uh, w- one of the science writers. Uh, you know, called it like a, a genetic thermostat for connection. Everyone has one um, where wh- where we are. Like as a writer, I, I both love to spend time with my friends and love to spend time with myself. It's called an ambivert, not just an introvert and not an extrovert, but an ambivert. And it is the sliding scale between extreme extroversion and extreme introversion. And Chris Knight is the most outlier of all outliers on this somewhat sliding scale. And, you know, we're coming to the end here. We've talked about a lot of big stuff. I want to hit one more profound point here that, as we're talking about, is kind of developed in that when you look at the the current advent of cell phones and social media, social media is is a really, at least for me, it's a really interesting phenomenon that's happening right now because it's designed to engage people socially. But you don't have that human connectivity. 
And I think that that is the thing that is, it's, it, it, I wish, I hope there are psychologists watching, especially young people interacting with all this stuff, because while it seems to be people are connecting, and I imagine physiologically those same chemicals are being released as they get more likes on Facebook or that people, you know, share their stuff on Twitter, or whatever it is. I think they're still getting those same chemicals, but I think without the interactivity of an actual human being, there has to be it's like i imagine it's like getting it's like getting certain uh it's like taking a vitamin instead of eating vegetables you know eating a vegetable is always the best way to get the thing and taking a vitamin is it good is it bad sometimes the jury's still out on it you know the i think that that really is going to affect the way human beings interact in a way that will be very fascinating for social psychologists in the future just wanted to go on that rant really quickly i don't know what you want to do with that no, I mean, as you were as you were talking, I was thinking. Even though it feels like we've had Facebook forever, uh, all of social media is extremely new, and we have yet to have the ability to take a step back and think about it. There, you know, I'm wondering what kind of studies will come out in 20 years. But as you were talking, I was thinking both about that, like, wow, I wonder what people will say in 20 years about it. And then I started thinking, oh, I think I might know. Um, <laughs> you I know. Have to say- <laughs> Yes, I'm the guru. I'm the, I know, I like the, the I prediction. Have, I am predicting that social media makes us more lonely. And uh, I, I really have a couple of specific things that are coming to my mind, but it is, it is. I think it might make us lonely. I think I, I know for a fact, you know, I've done a couple of stories. I did this story about these young boys who grew up in this tiny little island uh, in the uh, Pacific Ocean and actually almost killed themselves trying to escape from it. And I asked them why, and they talked a lot about Facebook and seeing how much fun people were having everywhere else and feeling like they were left out. And uh, that uh, that went through my head as you were as you were talking and you know everyone who goes on Facebook and thinks their life is boring or they don't go on enough vacations and the truth is you know Facebook is just not true you're not really meeting anyone you're just seeing like selective moments very 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 few people put on Facebook is I'm bored I got nothing to do I'm sad you know that happens occasionally but most part it's like this phony you know um, forced jocularity and I think it may make you lonely and oh, I don't know. I'd like to see what happens in 20 years, but I'm I'm predicting. You know, I think I think Chris Knight probably would say the same thing. That uh, you know, we think we're all connected, but in truth, we're probably further apart than we may ever have been. I think you're. I mean, I think you're right. I think there there is a lot of stuff coming out on that, and I think that this book, and especially Chris Knight, really show you the difference between being lonely and being alone. Because one is a desire for something that you don't have and want, and the other is just simply a physical state of being. And, you know, I think that they don't necessarily have to coincide, but when you are lonely, you are alone. You know, it's like A plus B equals C, but C plus B may not necessarily equal A. Um, You know, I think when you're lonely, you are alone, um, but you crave something else. But when you're alone, you don't necessarily have to be lonely. Uh, and I think that that's a, you know, this, these are all different elements in, in the book. And it's funny because at the top of the show, we talked about the five or six different version, par, you know, parts of this story. I didn't know where we were going to go. And there are so many more that we didn't get on, like we didn't get into that you, you, you have to read this book. Uh, this is Stranger in the Woods. It's the story of the last true hermit. Is that the correct subtitle? Yeah, the extraordinary story of the last true hermit, yeah. Extraordinary story of the last true hermit. 
Um, and this is just a fascinating, fascinating book. And you did a great job with it, Mike. I also like to say that it's a short book, despite the fact that there's so many things in here. You know, I, I have three children and I have a I, if, if I don't can't finish a book on one plane flight, I sometimes never get to it. It's despite the fact that there's a lot of things to talk about. It's only 191 pages. And you just met and just while you were talking briefly, you know, I asked Chris Knight how often he was lonely. And his answer was never. He was never lonely. And I asked him if he was bored. Sometimes he just sat there and he said he didn't even understand the definition of boredom. You know, and he said, you know, I, I said to him something like when you don't have anything to do. And he's like, I don't even understand that. I was like, you can just sit there and think. And I'm never he was never bored and never lonely, despite the fact that he was completely by himself, completely for 27 years and not just any 27 years, the heart of his life from the age of 20 to 47 and I feel like, you know, again, we uh, the fact that, Daniel, we got nowhere on this conversation and yet everywhere sort of encapsulates. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is that is fair enough. Uh, so where can people find your book? Where can people find you? Are you on social media as we just even though we just vilified it? Uh, how can people do that? Okay, well, the book is available everywhere from Amazon to your independent bookstore. You know, buy it as you as you as you want. I'm not going to make any uh, you know social. I'm not going to make you feel socially you know obligated to go to like you know the independent bookstore with the you know uh, solar panels on the roof. You can <laughs> buy it anywhere. You don't care. <laughs> the stranger in the woods. And then you know, my name is Mike Finkel or Michael Finkel. You can find me at michaelfinkel.com and you could uh feel I, i'm actually you know you feel free to send me a message through my website whether you liked it or didn't like it or how you feel about chris knight i i don't mind being criticized and i don't mind uh i, I try to answer everybody who gets in touch with me okay do you do social media facebook twitter instagram do you any of that yeah, all that stuff all that stuff okay yeah. i will i'll find it i'll put it on the website everyone will have sure. access to it so michael the fink thank you so much for being on the show today and thanks, thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. <laughs> thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Parientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Parientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every episode or follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. You can also subscribe to my newsletter, which will tell you about all the upcoming guests as well as new projects that I have in the works. You can also subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. iTunes, Stitcher, and we are now on Google Play. And if you really like this show and everything that I do, go to DanielJGlenn.com to check out everything else. Thank you so much for listening. End of transmission.